Uh, Lord, it, it is amazing that that we can sit here today and, and read th- this book, these words that you preserve for us, and, and to know that they are they're words from you. Uh, they're, they're words from you written through men thousands of years past, but preserved for us and placed in such a way that they are they're what we need to hear today. They address issues and display the truth about who you are in a kind of way that as, as our eyes are open to, our ears open to hear that it's exactly what we need to hear. And so this morning, my prayer is that we would hear from you, uh, that your spirit would attend to this message and the various circumstances that we find ourselves in, that you would do exactly what needs to be done, equip, strengthen, encourage, exhort, rebuke, whatever we need, that you would do that this morning and through this time. And so we're grateful that we can depend upon you. We come with nothing in our hands, nothing that we are in and of ourselves apart from your grace and your promise to us that you will meet us as we come. And indeed, it delights your heart as we do that you long for your people to worship and to listen to you because you know that's our greatest need. And so we uh, ask that you this morning would meet us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, we're going to look at 1, 1 through 2, 10 uh, this morning. Again this morning, if you were here last week, you thought, I thought, thought we did that last week. I said, yeah, we did. We're going we're gonna to run through it one more time and come a, take a couple different angles on this. Last week, we looked at it from the angle of the silence of God, the 350 years that we see Israel enslaved in, in Egypt, in which we don't hear much from God. They don't hear much from God. And Moses recounts the escalation of the policies of Pharaoh to continue to, to rule and to subdue them and bring them under his control during this period of time. And God is apparently absent. It, it looks that way, but it's not the truth. And what we looked at last week is the fingerprints of God, even in the midst of situation like that, even in the midst of situations that we find ourselves where it looks like God is absent. It looks like he is silent, that he leaves his grace, his fingerprints there on our lives. As we saw the blessing to, to, uh, Egypt or to Israel during this period of time, as they grew, they could see God present and Moses wants them to see that. And and we are we recognize that as God breaks his silence, if you will, as he speaks, as he shows up, it's certainly worth the wait. This, this morning, we're going to look at through a lens of we're going to look at slavery. We're going to look at what God is doing in terms of his overall plan here. So let's read this one, one through two, ten. This is God's word. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came from Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben. Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, 
lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh its door cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth See them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with with uh, well with them, with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and she bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him uh, for she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go up and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Stories for us are are important in a number of different ways. Your family probably has stories that you tell over and over again. Uh, Maybe it's stories about history events of your life. Maybe it was growing up. Maybe it was how the parents met. Maybe it was challenges that you had. The stories that we tell, especially the ones over and over, are formative for us. They form our identity, the way we understand ourselves, the way we see ourselves are through the, the lenses of those stories. Growing up, I remember the stories that my dad used to tell, the stories of, of him growing up and the hardship and the difficulty of growing up in a very impoverished life and the, the hard work that he would have. And even as a young boy, how he would, how he had to work hours and hours a day just to make ends meet for his family. And, and those stories still kind of resonate with me 
in my own life. And, and those stories didn't just form him and identity, a, a man who worked very hard all of his life, but those stories formed me. They formed our family such that the Pratts were about working hard. That's, that's who we were. That was a huge part of our identity. And so the stories told form our identity, and all of us have those stories that we tell. This story, the story of Exodus, was an incredibly important and significant forming event for the life and the history of Israel. This, the account of the Lord protecting them, of, of rescuing them out of Egypt was significant. This covenant-keeping God who rescued from generations of slavery and oppression to bring them to safety, to bring them to Him... The story was told and it was to be told over and over and again. And as it was told, it would form the identity of Israel. They would understand themselves through the lens of this story. In fact, the, the Psalm 105 that, that Tyler read in our worship time was one that was a, it was this story put to song so that they could sing it and the singing of it would reinforce the truth of who they were. And if you were to ask them, who are you? This story would be a lens. It would be a way that they would, they would explain it. They'd say, we are those who were rescued from slavery by God. We are those who were rescued from slavery and brought through water, the water of the Red Sea into the worship and the joyful freedom of service to our God. That, that's who we are. We are those who have been ransomed by God. They understood themselves through the lens of that. So we see that this, this story was formative for them. And as we read it again this morning, as we look back through it, a couple lenses I want to look at it. And one of the things that's important as we read Scripture is understand the layering of the story and, and how you can read and understand it, if you will, from a couple of different horizons. Certainly it's a story that happened and it was a real account and real people were involved in that was there, but the story, as I've mentioned before, was a pattern that did form the identity of Israel. That the story was told over and over again, such that it wasn't just one generation that formed the identity, that every generation saw themselves as those who had been rescued and ransomed by God. And so it was a pattern that would that would that all of Israel would would understand themselves through. And so we understand we can see this story as well through the lens of Israel as a whole in terms of their history. But if you've been around here for a while, you also know that there's a broader story that we need to understand this story by. And that's the story, the redemptive story of God's plan to rescue all of mankind, not just one nation. And that this story is a pattern that's set up for Christ himself, that every story ultimately leads towards him. There's individual stories that make up a larger story, which make up the large story of what God is ultimately doing to rescue people from their condition, to bring them to himself. That pattern is from slavery to redemption, to freedom in and under God's rule and reign. And that provides a lens by which we read the Bible in which we understand it. And even as we look at the story, it's important for us to see it in connection with what God is doing in all time and all places. As everything points ultimately to Christ, every dot, if you will, every line in the story begins as it's filled in, we see the picture of Christ. It points us that direction. At the end of Luke, if you remember the story on the road to Emmaus, as Jesus was talking, as he's instructing it, we're told there that Jesus now tells his two traveling companions the, 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 the true meaning, if you will, of the Old Testament. 
Luke writes this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that's Jesus, interpreted to them all the scriptures, in in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so all these stories point ultimately to him. Indeed, all these stories are best understood as we understand who he is and what his point is. So this narrative is, is, a, is, is real, it happened, and it points and is connected to the broader narrative of what God is doing for his people to rescue them. And so we want to see that. And as we look at, at this this morning and with those, those thoughts in mind, with this identity-forming aspect of this story in mind, there's a couple questions I want to ask. And, and draw out, if you will, the text and the, the meaning of the, the text of, of Scripture. A couple things. First of all, I want to look at the theme of slavery that's here. The theme of slavery. I want to ask the question, how is it, what can we learn about the human condition as we think about this picture of slavery immediately in this text? And then how Scripture describes the broader sense of slavery in which every person is under, in and under. And the second question I want to ask is, what's the narrative tell us about the way that God has gone about his rescue efforts, what he is doing, what he is up to in this passage as it relates to the bigger plan of God? So, so first of all, what this, I want to see this slavery as a window to the human condition. As a window to the human condition. What's really most true about each one who finds himself in a condition apart from God. What's most true? Now, Scripture describes the human condition, the predicament that we find ourselves in, in a variety of different ways. And you can read through Scripture and see these lenses, the way it's described. Describes us as lost, blind, lame, ignorant, guilty, hopeless, rebellious, broken, and on and on we could go. Different lenses on understanding our true condition. But, but this text gives us a lens to understand our condition in light of what God's doing through the lens of understanding it as, as enslaved. As those who are in bondage. And as we ask the question, what's it tell us about our condition? He says, we're enslaved. There's something true. There's something real about this. Not enslaved under any one person, under one nation, but enslaved by sin. In the bondage of sin, under the rule and control of Satan. That our identity is tied to this master of, of the devil who seeks to subjugate us, who seeks to rule us. So I want to ask the question, what's this tell us about this situation of being enslaved? Because there's really only two groups of people. There, there, there's two categories, and those categories are described and defined By who is your master? Who are you serving? Who is dictating your life? For whom do you live? Determines which category you fall into. And in this, as we, as we look at this, the verse, uh, the whole chapter one is really about this picture of them being enslaved. But 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14 give us a kind of a compressed picture of what life living under the rule of another one, living as slaves, what it's like, what it feels like, what it looks like. Verses 13 and 14, we have a, lots of kind of a piling up of words that Moses wants us to see and point towards the experience of living enslaved. 13 and 14, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Do you get the point? 
It's ruthless. The experience is awful. And you see there that that layer after layer aspect of their lives is, is covered and controlled slaves working, serving under and in and under the control of someone else. It means to be given the whole, to give the whole of your lives to something else. There's one particular Hebrew word that's used five times in verse 14 alone. And it's a word that has some breadth of meaning, but what it means is to serve. It's to serve under and in. And five times that word is used in some form to, to, to carry the point, to drive home the point that guess what? Their lives were completely driven and lived under the control of someone else. They had no choices to make. No one else to serve except for Pharaoh. Everything they did was, was for him. Their, their lives revolved around him and certainly not around God. So this gives us a picture of what that experience is like. It's to be driven by someone else. All of our lives, it's there. You see, the human condition can seem, be seen most vividly in this way. It's not just a deprivation of of money or education or equality, as much as as important as those things are in our society, the truest state, the truest condition of humanity is that is enslaved. To be under the service and in the service in bondage to sin and under the control of the God of this world that is Satan. And the greatest need for person for a person in that state is to be Freed to be brought from the under the the, the uh, slavery of one master and into the, the service of another master, a good master whose interests are for our own good, and in fact whose interests intersect perfectly with our good, such that our service for him feels like freedom. Indeed, it is freedom for us. And so, this category, this picture of of humanity, and in this picture of slavery, is important. It's a it's a vivid picture for all those, if you will, who are unredeemed, those who have not experienced the grace of God, find themselves under the master, under the service, if you will, in the kingdom of Satan himself. Their identity is tied to their master. They are ruled by sin. They are used for the purposes of Satan, whose lives are given for his purposes whose own desires, their selfish desires, drive them. Their own fallen and selfish desires are the things that drive them. They are enslaved by, by that as well. To be under the rule of Satan means that, that my, what I want drives me. Cornelius Planinga, what a name, is a, a professor uh, in a book called um, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He writes about sin in this way, and he says it's a, it's a whole book on sin. It's actually an excellent book as it describes this. He says that, that sin is both fatal and fruitful. It's both fatal and it's fruitful. It's fatal in that, it's fatal in that everything that it brings is destructive. Whether it appears to be benign or healthy or natural or normal, or whatever, it is destructive. It kills. It's fatal. It's also fruitful in that it's productive. It produces of like Kind. It's never alone. It's never isolated. It produces other kinds of sins alongside it. It's lethal. Its offspring is lethal. It grows and spreads. It's contagious. He writes this in relation to the kind of the clustering effects of sin in, in the lives of those in, in, in our lives. He said, he writes, people rarely commit single sins. Thievery and lies 
and lies about lies, pride and mockery and assault, laziness, snappishness, there's a new word for us, and cheating, alcohol abuse that empties back into laziness. These sins and products of sin keep on replicating and bunching together like clusters of grapes on a vine. See what he says, that that sin rules, it it overtakes us, and it's never alone, it's never isolated. It is productive in a deadly kind of way. It's also insidious, causes harm in a way that's gradual or uneasily noticed. And that's because as sin enters in our lives, as as it takes over our lives, it masquerades that which is normal. It masquerades as normal human desire, right? I should want this. What's wrong with this? This These are fundamental wants. Don't I have a right to be happy? And this is what makes me happy. So it, it masquerades as normal, fundamental human desire. And yet it's the very thing that enslaves. And... And the heart has no way of discerning between what's good and healthy. If it wants it, it must want it. There's a line that, that Cornelius Plantinga brings up in his book. He points to an episode that happened about two dec- decades ago. Woody Allen, in, a, in a, an affair that he had with his teenage, the teenage daughter of a woman that he, he was a partner with, uh, and, and trying to explain his actions and, and justify it even, he, he uses this statement. He says, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. And he uses it to justify what he wants. You see, if it wants it, what's wrong with that? What it wants, it will rule, it will take, it will get, it will go after. Unless the old heart is replaced with a new heart, that old heart will rule. Its own sinful passions and desires will rule us with no way to discern, distinguish between what's good or what's not. Because what I want is right. So it masquerades as this fundamental, normal human desire. And it tells us something about us, our great need. And so ultimately we find ourselves powerless, dead to do anything, mostly because we're unaware of it. We think this is normal, this is natural. And you listen and you hear the verbiage and the rhetoric of the world around us and the culture around us. What I want, should I not be able to have it? Don't I have a right to go after the things that I want? And that's the language that fools and deceives and lies And by the way, it's fatal and it's fruitful. It produces deadly offspring in the lives of those who do not see any other way. And even if we see guilt or shame or that's there, there's there's no way to deal with the contamination of that. We might think of the picture in my mind. The first one that came to mind is the the image from the Lord of the Rings, the trilogy, the book or the movie. You take your pick. But the picture, the, the figure that is we see so clearly is the the character of Gollum there, the one who is enslaved by his own desires, his own love for the ring of power, such that his own life is transformed, such that the outside of him becomes like the inside, becomes calloused and leathery, hideous, unfeeling, gross, murderous, so that the outside of him is seen like the inside, is as this passion takes over. This is what it looks like. But I want to be careful when we think about those who are enslaved to sin. As if we can see that always with the naked eye. 
It's not just like we're talking about serial rapists or killers or those who would break into a church and and murder people like that. What we're talking about are people that's just like us. The kind of bondage that might not be seen. See, we have tasted what this is. We, we know what it means to be enslaved by our sin. For those of us who have been rescued and brought into the kingdom of light, we know what it means to be in bondage to our sin. Great or small, we know what that means. Whether it's visible to others or not internally, we're aware of that. So, so we know that we might not have been as bad off or as bad as we could be. We know we were as bad off as we could be because of that as we look at our lives We see that. So Paul talks about this. He describes this situation of being enslaved in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hatred, uh, hated by others and hating others. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of the works by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy for the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see what he says? He says, for we ourselves, we were led slaves to various passions and desires. And so this describes the condition of humanity apart from Christ, the condition of being enslaved to sin, driven by it. It's fatal and it's fruitful effects in our lives. Under the dominion of darkness, in need of being transferred in the kingdom of the Son that He loves. You see, this is the message of the gospel. This is where the story comes in. The story redefines us and says there is an answer to that. There is a way to be rescued. That the greatest need of human, the human condition can be addressed by the very rescue of God. As we look at this account, that's what God is doing. He's rescuing. The redemption of God is available. It's a message of Christ that frees one from the penalty of sin and the power of sin as well. While we await for the the presence of sin to be dealt with. See, this transfer deals with a radical change in lordship and loyalty and ultimately identity. For those who are in the kingdom of darkness, for those who are under the rule of Satan, that's what their life looks like. And for many of us, we know what that tastes like. But now the question, I can't go on without at least addressing the situation as a believer. It's not like as we came to Christ, all of a sudden, this sense of the, the, the deadliness of sin and its fruitfulness is just completely gone and eradicated as much as we wish it were the case. We have experienced a sense of freedom and forgiveness, of protection because of God's grace, it's there. The power over sin and its polluting, polluting effects in our lives are, are real and we have tasted them. However, we also know it's important to realize that as we give ourselves back to sin, the same effects we will experience. It's impossible for anyone, believer or not, to give themselves to sin and not experience its deadly effects. It's destructive effects. It's fruitful effects as it grows and spreads and clusters. Such that the experience of it is really little different between the redeemed and the uh, the unredeemed. It brings death and it brings its 
friends along with it. But the beauty of it is, is that regardless, freedom, the the path to freedom is the same. Whether we have entrusted ourselves to Christ the first time or other times, that the path is the same and the path is submission. The path is confession. The path back to freedom and to Christ is repentance of our own sin. It's to follow him, to find ourselves in, in lordship under him. To, to, to place, if you will, our trust, transfer our loyalty again and again and again back to him. To tell ourselves the same story over and over again that I have been transferred into the kingdom of light. And to look to him for the strength to live there. So the fact is, this condition, this picture of slavery that we can draw out of this is there. That every person we run across is in one kingdom or another. In one place or another, under the lordship of Christ or under the lordship of Satan. Whether it seems that way or not, it is true. There is no neutral ground. Every person we see, every person we run across will find themselves in one situation or the other. One identity or another will be taken on and it's tied to their master. So we see as we look at this, this condition, that slavery is real. But the slavery under a person or a nation, as bad as that is, to be enslaved by the God of this world, by Satan himself, by our own sins is even worth, worse. But, but the story goes on. It doesn't end with slavery. It ends with freedom. And in it, we want to ask the second question. First question is, what do we learn about human condition and what's it look like? The second question is, what do we learn about God's rescue efforts? What do we see that he's doing as we, through a lens of this story of this account, what is he up to and how is he about up to it? What's he, what's he doing? Now it's important to note, I've mentioned this before, that God didn't need the 400 years to deliver his people. He didn't even need this whole account of, of, you know, order of, of being, of, of bring, of Moses coming in on down the Nile and, and growing up in the house of, of Pharaoh. He didn't need any of these events. He could have, if he wanted to instantaneously rescue his people, deliver them, all the, the Egyptians dead, people free to go. But God rescues in a way for a purpose. He wants to declare something and tell us something about his intentions, about how he goes about it. And what he wants to put on display here is his strength and power over Pharaoh. He says, I want you to see this. It's like, yeah, I could do it any way I want, but I want to do this in such a way so that you see... That my power is greater than his. We're going to go head to head, so to speak. I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to show you who he is. Who Pharaoh is and, and who the gods that they worship are. I'm going to display my superiority over them. And on every turn in this first chapter where you see Pharaoh trying to protect his interest in his people. At every turn you see God stepping in and thwarting those efforts. At every point, Pharaoh's trying to protect his kingdom. God says, I'm going to work in and under, in and through your plans to bring my plan. When you think you're protecting your kingdom, I'm actually going to use your plans to undermine that. And so we're going to look at this. Three different aspects or levels of progression. We're going to see that God thwarts the plans of his enemies. He uses the plans of his enemies. And then he uses those plans and he turns death into life. First of all, he, he thwarts the plans of his enemies. 
in this. And we, we, we touched on this last week if you were here, but throughout this text you see these, this increasing intensity and escalation of the policies of Pharaoh to increase the, the, the burdens on them and the taskmasters over them. But you see in each case they're thwarted. But they grew and expanded and, and, and the footprint continued to grow in spite of their efforts to suppress them through hard work and labor. But then he employs the, the midwives. And you see there that then in spite of that, they refuse to follow him. So his efforts to use them are thwarted. And instead, the people continue to grow and the midwives are blessed. And so you see his plans thwarted there as well. But then in verse 22 or the, is the high point, the escalation of his attempt just to, to employ the, all the Egyptians to throw and to cast the, the children or the sons of Israel into the Nile as they were born. But then 1 through 10 of chapter 2 is an ironic twist to the escalation, to the, to the attempt that he has to kill the sons of Israel. God steps in and he does something that's a little bit interesting to thwart his plan. We'll talk about that in just a moment. God's ordained plan. But it's important in this process to note something that that you can read commentaries. Anybody can can read this and see this. It's important that who is it? Who are the agents? Who are the, the people that God is using to thwart, to go against Pharaoh, by the way, who thinks himself to be a God? It's women. That in every case here, the midwives... Moses's mom, his sister, even Pharaoh's own daughter are the ones that stand up against him who thwart his plan at every turn. God uses a woman. And I have to tell you that the way, the view that women would have had in that day and age would have been barely more than a possession. And God says, I want you to see something. I'm going to use women. I'm going to honor women in this way. I'm going to demonstrate my power through them. I'm going to thwart the power of this deity, this God of Egypt, by using them. And so every turn as you're reading the story, you go, you're not going to win. And so God thwarts his plan in ironic kinds of ways, in ways that are difficult to see, but they're, but they're there. But then he goes, we go on and we see, he didn't just thwart them. He actually uses the plans of the enemy to accomplish his will. He, he wants to kind of, he want to, he plays on Pharaoh's playground. He, he steps into his game and says, okay, we're going to play your game. In fact, I'm going to take your plans and I'm going to turn them upside down. I'm going to use your plans. I'm going to show my superiority and we're going to win. I'm going to, I'm going to beat you on your own terms, so to speak. He doesn't just beat him. He uses his plans, Pharaoh's plans to implement his own, to insert, if you will, his agent, into Pharaoh's court. God says, I'm going to do something here that would be surprising. I'm going to use this plan of yours to try to kill the sons of Israel, to use it to actually bring a son of Israel into your place and to be raised and to be equipped there. And so as a last-ditch effort, uh, Pharaoh is saying, throw every son into the Nile to bring the, employ all the people of Egypt. Now, now what's, what's interesting here, what's important to note is, why does he use that plan? Why is that a strategy? Just throw him into the river. Well, you could say, well, he's just frustrated and just take care of it. Well, there's lots of ways that you could kill a child. You could do nothing and they would die. But in this case, you see him employing something that, that, that we need to see. And that is, he is using the Nile. And the Nile, if you know, was, it was a god. It was one of the gods of, of, of Egypt. 
one of the gods that they served, that they worshipped. It was a source of life to them. And so what you see here is Pharaoh is using this means, this method to display the greatness of the gods of Egypt, that is the Nile, over the God of Israel. And so he's bringing the people, he's involving them into this process. So by, by doing this, they're actually worshiping, they're actually paying homage to the gods that they worship. And so it's no accident that the Nile was chosen. It's no accident that God then uses the Nile to bring about his plan to protect and to raise up his redeemer, his deliverer there. There's a lot in verses 1 through 10, which is the response to verse 22 that we see here as, as he describes the story of Moses's birth and and his miraculous protection under the care of Pharaoh's wife. You can see the Moses' Levitical heritage there. You can see the great faith, desperation, and planning of Moses' mother and his sister as they're, they're, they're waiting to see what's going to happen as they, they try to do something there. We also, uh, you can see the irony that Moses' mother gets paid to, to nurse and to raise her own son. Talk about, you know, fleecing the Egyptians and, and taking the money from them. That's there. But we want to think about how God demonstrates his superiority over the gods of Egypt. First, note this, that Moses' mother is in response to Pharaoh's command. Throw every child into the Nile. What does she do? She does technically exactly what he commands her to do. She takes this child and puts it into a basket, places it into the Nile. A little bit different approach. But you see, instead of entrusting her child to the gods of Egypt, the God of the Nile, she entrusts her child to the God of Israel. She places him in his care and what he would do. And so she is just, she is doing what Pharaoh told her to do, except she's trusting in a different God in the process of being even technically obedient to him. But then note how God uses Pharaoh's plans and turns them upside down to use them for his own, to accomplish his own plan here. Of bringing and escorting, if you will, the Redeemer into the very place where he'll be, he'll be raised. The Lord used the gods of Egypt. See, Pharaoh's own plan here. He uses the gods of Egypt to demonstrate his own superiority. You see, in this case, the Nile was a service, a servant to God. The Nile who they worship became the source, the way that The Redeemer was brought even into the house of Pharaoh. God used their own gods to accomplish his ends. Thus he mocks the gods of Egypt. The God is not only superior to their gods, but he uses their plans. You might say he eats them for lunch, that he uses them to bring about his own plans, such that one of the commentators said that the the river was foiled of its prey, and in the process, a great god of Egypt was defeated. Let's not miss the fact that as Moses is brought into the house of Pharaoh and raised there, that it's, it's under Pharaoh's own nose. And as my dad would say, it was on his nickel that, that Moses was raised and equipped and trained and educated ultimately to be the redeemer. That God would use that, that means, those means and methods that, that Pharaoh would provide. God saw fit that one would need to be adequately equipped and placed in the right place to be able to be a mediator, to be his agent there. So God didn't just defeat his enemies. He didn't just thwart them. He uses their plans against them. 
He uses their own efforts to accomplish his will. But finally, he goes further. What we see is what was intended for life, for death actually becomes life. What's intended to bring about death and to be judgment actually becomes a source of life. In God's providential hands, this basket that, that Moses is placed within and placed in the Nile at the command, the evil command of Pharaoh that's to bring death, to bring judgment, it's intended to be an instrument of death, actually becomes an instrument of life. It's interesting, it's significant, we can't unpack it, but the, the word for basket is the same word for ark in the flood account. We see the same thing taking place there in both seasons of judgment, a place of judgment through one man would judgment be offset by the promise of God through an ark, through something that would hold that up and prevent instead of being waters of judgment, we come, we see the waters of blessing that's there. So God's saving purposes involve an ironic twist here. What was meant to be bringing death actually brings life. Tens of thousands of Israelites rescued through the hand of Moses ultimately. But we see the pattern, right? How is it that God accomplishes his plan? How does he deliver people from slavery and bring them into freedom? What does he do? He thwarts his enemies. He uses the enemy's plans to bring about his own plan of redemption. His own person, his own agent, he places in the right place. And at the very high point where the enemy thinks he wins is bringing death, God turns an instrument of death and turns it into an instrument of life. And all the arrows, of course, point toward Christ. They point toward what God was doing in and through him. He does thwart the plans of the enemy. He does turn the plans of Satan upside down. And he does turn an instrument of death on the cross into an instrument of eternal life. He brings life to the completely hopeless, to the powerless, to those who are enslaved under the, the fatalness, the deadliness and the fruitfulness of sin, who are insidious to its effects, whose, whose hearts need to be replaced with a new heart. He brings and fulfills his plans there. And he makes a mockery. He puts on open, open shame, to open shame, the enemies of God. And he displays all this on a cross, the exact symbol that is a symbol of death. He demonstrates and brings life there. The Nile was a symbol of judgment, that it became a source of life. The cross is an instrument of judgment that becomes the only source of eternal life. Cycling back to our question of identity. You ask the question to Israel, who are you? Who are you? They would recount this story of of slavery. Enslaved completely in bondage with no choices to be made of their own. Only to be rescued by God. It was a story that was told. That was, they would tell over and over again. You would see that there was a story. They would say, did you see how God did that? Did you see what he did? He took us when we were completely powerless. And did you see what he did? He thwarted the gods of Egypt. He defeated them on their own terms. He took their plans and turned them upside down. And he took an instrument of death and he turned it into an instrument of life. And we sit here today reciting the same story week after week. The same story that forms our identity. 
We ask the question, who are we? And this story informs us a God who comes and rescues, not just temporally, but eternally, who rescues us from the bondage of sin and Satan, who transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, who gives us freedom in his service, who thwarted the plans of the enemy to destroy, who, who turned his plans into his own accomplished plans and then turns an instrument of death into an instrument of life. This is a story we tell over and over again. And in so doing, it reinforces and reframes our own identity. It helps us understand who are we. And as they would sing the song of Moses, as Exodus 15, we started a service. The song, a part of this is, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They would say, we're his. So we sing the same song. But we have a perspective That's even higher than theirs as those who have been rescued from eternal death to be brought to eternal life. As we sing the song, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders in our lives? We are his. That's who we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this truth of our condition that you tell us clearly and how you've delivered us father i pray specifically for those who are here who taste and know what the deadliness of sin is and its fruitfulness and contagious work in their own lives and i pray that that each one here would look to you confess repent of sin and and turn to you and find help and hope in you Father, would you enable us to to retell the story in a way that it would form who we are, that we would know who we are, even in the midst of the challenges of the world in which we live, the challenges of our own hearts as they fight against us. But thanks for placing within us this new heart that has this desire for you and to bring life there where there was death. Father, guide us and lead us as a congregation. Many things to be praying for in our world and in, in our church. Father, I do pray for Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston and as they work through continually this awful atrocity there. Father, would you continue to, to bring kind of reconciliation, understanding for the great need of repentance and forgiveness as a country to be able to understand these kinds of acts. Father, within our midst, I uh, pray for the McGarity family and the death of Carol's cousin and, and just pray that you would be present with them and, and, and give them strength. Pray for Bill and Karen uh, this week and, and over the course of this month as, as they deal with situation with, with Bill's sister and trying to care best for her, give them wisdom and grace there. Be with our uh, teams as they head to St. Louis next Saturday. Um, use them there, we pray. Father, continue to walk with us, empower us, we pray, to live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.